you're new with us, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for some time. We had some speakers come through last weekend for the Resistance Conference, and I was talking with one of the brothers, and he preached through the Gospel of Matthew. I told him, we'll probably end up being in the Gospel of Matthew uh, for about three years, and he said, that's nothing. It took me 13. So I said, I'm just going to share that with my church. If you think we've been here too long, hey, we could be in here another decade, all right? But what we're trying to do is break it up a little bit because there are sections. And so we're in this new section of Matthew, starting in 21, called the true people of God, where we're seeing Jesus come in and teach about really the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. Much of this section of Matthew 21 to 25 is about the end of Israel and the birth of the new Israel, the church. We've really seen since the very beginning of chapter 1 that the story of Jesus is the story of the culmination of Israel. The story of Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. That's why really in those early chapters and really all the way through, Matthew and Jesus are quoting the Old Testament again and again and again. In those early chapters, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet. This was to fulfill what was written by the prophet. Thirteen times he says that wants us to see that the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. And these are hard passages, and therefore they're hard sermons. Because in some ways, again, we're looking at history. We're looking at the end of the Old Covenant, the beginning of the New. These passages actually don't tell us a whole lot about our lives directly, what we should do. And they have a lot of Old Testament, and sometimes it's more obscure passages in the Old Testament that we're less familiar with, that we need to understand to know what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. And this section here is relaying how God judged his unfaithful people. Main point, which in some ways has been the main point since chapter 21, verse 1, every week, is that due to their rejection of Jesus, God will take the kingdom from Israel and give it to the church. And so let's look together. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 776. Let's walk through Matthew 21. 33 and following. Look with me at Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So Jesus is giving another parable. Matthew 21 and 22 have three parables. Last week was, or the week before, was Israel's indictment in verses 28 to 32. This week is Israel's sentence. Next week will be Israel's execution in 22, 1 to 14. So Jesus says this master plants a vineyard. He leases it out and then he leaves. And we'll see that the master is God and the tenants are the Jerusalem leadership. And in scripture, Israel was often portrayed as a vineyard. I think actually Jesus is probably alluding to Isaiah 5. You can turn there with me if you want. Isaiah is a big book. If you just open up your Old Testament, you're liable to land on it. I think this is what he's alluding to in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Speaking of the people of the Lord as a vineyard. Isaiah 5, 1. Let me sing for my beloved... My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars, briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, and they will, and that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I think Jesus is clearly alluding to this to say, look, Israel's failure to produce fruit is being repeated yet once again. It's why Jesus cursed the fig tree in our previous passage, right? Look back at chapter, back to Matthew chapter 21, look at verse 18. The fig tree is Israel. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. This isn't Jesus just, you know, having a hissy fit because he was hungry. No, he's acting as a prophet. This is symbolic action. The fig tree is Israel and Israel's curse, much like the vineyard in Isaiah 5. So Israel is the vineyard. Psalm 80 verse 8 says of Israel, you brought a vine out of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah 2, 21, I planted you as a choice vine. So it's very clear what Jesus is saying. Look at the next verse there in verse 34. The parable continues, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Jesus says it's harvest time, and so the master sends his servants to collect the fruit. And how did the tenants respond? Did they hand over the fruit to the owner of the vineyard as they should have? Did they give their employer his rightful due? No, they beat one, killed one, and stoned one. Tragic. Evil. And so the master destroys them all, right? He clears his vineyard of these murderers, right? Wrong. The master sends yet more servants. Look at verse 36. Again, he sent other servants. More than the first. And they did the same to them. I just stop here for a moment and observe the kindness, the patience, the forbearance, the long suffering of this master. He sends yet more, he gives them yet another chance. They don't deserve it, but here we are. Jesus here is talking about Old Covenant Israel, but I wonder today. Where you are, I wonder if God maybe has been pursuing you and you just keep shutting the door. He keeps inserting himself into your life and you keep pushing him out. You keep choosing your way rather than his way. He's been gracious to you. He's extended opportunity after opportunity 
after opportunity. And the fact that you're here this morning is yet one more opportunity. But friend, I would just say we're going to see that his patience will run out eventually. But today, in your life, he's sending yet another servant to tell you to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. This master sends yet more servants. But how do the tenants respond? They respond the same as the first time. This is the story of Israel. God had sent servant after servant after prophet after prophet to Israel, but they would not repent. Remember, just before this, Jesus comes into the temple and he symbolically pre-enacts the destruction of the temple. And he, he quotes Jeremiah 7, which is Jeremiah's sermon where he's outside of the temple gate preaching. That if you don't repent, this place will be destroyed just like it was before at Shiloh. Jeremiah is the prophet of doom. In Matthew 24, we'll see that Jesus is going to be a new Jeremiah prophesying the final destruction of Jerusalem. But notice how Jeremiah ends his temple sermon. Jeremiah 7.25 says this, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, the very beginning, to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer. And so... God's telling Jeremiah, you're going to keep preaching the same message that prophet after prophet has preached, but they're stiff-necked and they're not going to listen, which is where it ultimately ends up with us this morning and a couple chapters to come. In fact, flip over a page to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus sounds just like Jeremiah. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. His patience will finally run out. Verse 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house, this temple, is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God had sent prophet after prophet, servant after servant. They were rejected. They were persecuted. They were killed. And John the Baptist, in many ways, was that last prophet. Flip back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 9. 
Prophet after prophet after prophet, servant after servant after servant. Matthew 11, verse 9. Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's been, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The master has graciously and patiently sent servant after servant to the vineyard. God's given chance after chance opportunity to repent. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Finally, the master sends the son. Clearly, God sending, sending Jesus. Jesus is the final word. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, long ago it Many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Servant after servant and finally the son. By the way, just zooming out here from this passage a moment. Notice uh, that the son here is speaking about the uniqueness of the son. You catch that? Well, there's the servants, but then there's the son. Jesus is talking about his own identity. Jesus is speaking of his own uniqueness. You know, sometimes non-Christians will dismiss, dismiss uh, Christianity. Well, Jesus wasn't really God. He wasn't really the son of God, but he was a good, you know, he was a wise teacher. He was a good moral teacher. That's just false. If he's not the son of God, he is a crazy megalomaniac. Here he is speaking of his own unique identity because he is, in fact, the Son of God. Well, surely the tenants will respect the master's son. Surely. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They want the master's stuff, so they throw the son out of the vineyard and kill him. Some of the most sobering words in this gospel. Let us kill him. Now this is a parable, but it's going to point forward to what that generation of Jews would demand about Jesus in just a couple days. Flip a few pages over to Matthew 27. What Jesus is teaching them in parabolic form is going to become history. Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves and all the people. Remember, this is the Jewish people. This is Jerusalem. All the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, 
and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Shocking, sobering, tragic. Come, let us kill him. Watch this. This is fascinating, though. I love the Bible. There's this phrase here, come, let us kill him. It's three words. It's, it's dute, apoktonomen, auton in Greek. Those three words in that order happen two times in the entire Bible. One's right here, come, let us kill him. The other one's in Genesis 37. You remember Genesis 37? Genesis 37, where Joseph has the dream of his brothers bowing down to him, and they get hot about it and conspire to kill him. And you know what they say? Dute, apoktonomen, auton. Exact same phrase, come, let us kill him. Jesus is new Jeremiah. Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is the new Joseph who God's going to exalt and he's going to be betrayed and ultimately killed by his own. But God's going to raise up to a place of authority where he'll bring blessing to the Gentiles. They kick him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffers Outside, He's kicked outside. Mark and Luke, in this same story, they say the beloved son. They don't just say, Matthew says son. Mark and Luke say the beloved son is put to death. Again, by those who are supposed to be working for the master. His death will be Israel's culminating act of rebellion. That's why he says in 23, fill up then the measure of your fathers. It's reached its height. With the crucifixion of their own Messiah, they will seal their fate. As Jesus said of the fig tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. Look at Matthew 21, verse 40. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So Jesus asks them a question. He asks them to answer. And much like you remember when Nathan comes to David and has a little parable of the little ewe lamb. They indict themselves. Look at verse 41. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They answer strongly and clearly. The master will put those wretches to a wretched end. He'll put those tenants to a miserable death. He will take away the vineyard from them and rent it out to other tenants who will give them the fruit at harvest time. He will replace them with faithful servants. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Once again, as we've seen so many times, Jesus points to Scripture. He says, have you never read? Don't you know? Do you even Bible, bro? No one has a higher view of Scripture than Jesus. In fact, just look back. Look what we've seen. I mean, I, there's so many we could point to, but just the point where he rebukes his own people for not knowing the Word. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. Jesus being opposed. Matthew 12, 3. Have you not read what David did? Don't you know the Bible? If you knew your Bible, you'd be accepting me, not rejecting me. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. 
Or have you not read in the law? Don't you know the Bible? Then flip over to chapter 19. Nineteen verse four. Jesus asks, "Have you not read that you created them from the beginning? Don't you know Genesis, man?" Look to chapter twenty-one, verse sixteen. Jesus said to them, "Yes, have you never read?" And then in twenty-two. Verse 31, have you not read what was said to you by God? By the way, look at that. Have you not read what was said to you by God? For Jesus, what is said in the scripture is said by God. What God says, scripture says. No one has a higher view of scripture than Jesus. The king of kings is constantly pointing us and pointing his antagonist to scripture. For Jesus The Bible is authoritative, therefore, for the followers of Jesus, we should see the Bible as authoritative. So he he asked them, have you not read in the scriptures? And he quotes Psalm 118 again. We've seen that again. And Psalm 118 is that final psalm of the Hillel psalm that the crowd quoted as he entered the city. It's about the king's victorious enthronements. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected now has become the cornerstone. It's that most important stone in the structure. It holds the two sides of the building together. It is structurally indispensable, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the most important one. Peter says that, quotes the same psalm actually, To speak of Jesus, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And remember where Jesus is. He's in the temple. He's not talking about the cornerstone of some random building. He's talking about the temple. Because Jesus is himself the new temple. That's why in John chapter 2, he says, you can destroy this body in three days. It'll be rebuilt. You can destroy this temple and it'll be rebuilt. He replaces the temple as the place where we find forgiveness. He replaces the temple as the locus where God's presence is found. That's why we saw in Matthew chapter 12, 6, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. Then he gives us the point in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus now draws the conclusion of the parable. What are we to take from this? Therefore, here's what you need to know. Here's what I'm saying. The kingdom of God will be taken from Israel and given to another people. Here's how one Matthew scholar puts it. He says, this is one of the most important verses in Matthew. And it says, nothing less momentous than that the kingdom of God will be taken away from Israel and given to a new nation, which is understood as the church of both Jews and Gentiles. Taken from Israel and given 
to the church. That's the punchline of the parable. You know what? That's actually the punchline of the parable before it and the parable after it. Look at chapter 21, verse 31. After the parable of the two sons, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, here it is. Truly I say to you, Israel, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the the pagans, the Gentiles, they will go into the kingdom of God before you. And then we'll see in our next parable, chapter 22, look at verse 8. Same punchline. Jesus really wants them to get this and for us to get this. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited... Who were invited, that's Israel, were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. One nation replaced by another nation. The ESV says people, but literally the word is ethnos, nation or Gentiles. What nation? Well, the church, the international nation, the nation of nations, anyone who receives Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what he says at the beginning of the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to his own, Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become Israel, who were born not of blood, Not of natural descents. One of Paul's favorite slogans is circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Ethnicity no longer means a thing in the new covenant. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. But to anyone who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but of God. And so what we see is Jesus is coming to restore his people and to gather his people, and Israel's being reconstituted around Israel's king, Jesus the Messiah. And anyone who receives Jesus becomes Israel, becomes the children of God, becomes the offspring of Abraham. Here in verse 43, the punchline of the parable, Jesus says, one nation, Israel, is replaced by the new nation, the church. The international church fulfills Israel. And if we remember the story of Scripture, right from the beginning, the whole point of Israel was blessing to whom? Israel alone? No. The nations, right? God pulls out this old pagan couple, Abram and Sarai, and promises that through them all the nations of the world will be blessed. Right from the very beginning, the purpose of the forming of the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to all nations. Here's how commentator Richard France puts it, he says, This nation is neither Israel nor the Gentiles, but a new entity drawn from both, which is characterized not by ethnic origin, but by faith in Jesus. It's all about Jesus now, faith in Jesus. So he says, The kingdom of God's taken from Israel, given to the church. And this is a reality that's not just here with Jesus, it's really taught all over the New Testament. And this relationship of Israel and the church is actually a really uh, good test case for how we put the Bible together. And it's a really important conversation. Whole systems of theology diverge at this point. And uh, I think it's actually pretty clear. So I want us to take a little stroll through the New Testament asking about this relationship of Israel and the church. We can stop with Jesus. His words are enough. But it's just good to see the unity of the Bible on this matter. So flip with me. Let's walk. Let's start with the book of Romans, chapter 2. 
It's helpful for us to understand our identity. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Here we have the Apostle Paul redefining what it means to be a Jew. Romans 2.28, for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. It has nothing to do with outwardness anymore. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Isn't that interesting? But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Isn't that fascinating? You know what he's alluding to, the promise in Deuteronomy 30, that God would circumcise our hearts. What he's saying now is externals don't matter. What matters is your hearts. A Jew is not one outwardly. A Jew is one inwardly. And if you've been circumcised of hearts, you're a Jew. And if you trusted in Christ, you have been. You've been regenerated. Flip a page over to Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That's why the promise, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, speaking of Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. How do we become sons of Abraham? Faith. In other words, how do we become Israel? Faith. Galatians, in large part, is written about this very question. Flip over there a few books to the right to Galatians chapter 3. Paul had started the church at Galatia. Everything was going really well. And then these false teachers came in and were basically saying, yeah, you need to trust Jesus, but you also need to basically become Jewish. So the question of who is true Israel is actually a big part of the book of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Know then that it is Christians who are Israel. Really wants us to get this. He says it again in verse 26, Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you, and he's writing to Gentiles, right? Galatia, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no difference. There's no distinction between Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are of Christ. You're an heir of the promise to Abraham. If you are of Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a son of Abraham. If you are a part of the church, you are the new Israel. We inherit the promises, not because of anything in us, but because of Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Christ, and then Christ opens them up to us. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 28. Now you, brothers, Gentiles, Galatians, Abilenians, Like Isaac, are children of promise. You're an heir because of faith in Jesus. Faith is what matters. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Here's Paul's little rule of the new creation. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Ethnicity doesn't mean a thing in the new creation, but a new creation. 
Verse 16, and all who walk by this rule, what rule? The rule he just said, the rule that ethnicity means nothing. All who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, namely the Israel of God. Paul here is defining the Israel of God as those who follow the rule that ethnicity doesn't matter. That has to be the church for two reasons. Right there it says the rule of the new creation is there's no ethnicity. Ethnicity doesn't matter. But also the larger context of Galatians where he has said over and over and over again that if you have faith, you're a son of Abraham. If you're of Christ, you're an offspring of Abraham. There's no way at the end he could say, actually, there's a distinction. No, the church fulfills the promises given to Israel because we've been united to Christ. Flip over to the book of Ephesians, the next book, chapter 2. Verse 14, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The two have become one. The one new humanity around Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 4 of Ephesians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What is God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. And he starts with a unified body of Jews and Gentiles. He wants to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? I wonder... If your view of the church is as high as God's view of the church, church ain't no plan B. Church ain't no parentheses. Church is God's eternal purpose, and you're a part of it. The church is the apple of God's eye. It was always, eternally, about Christ and his body. And you're a part of my faith. First Peter, we won't go there for the sake of time, but Peter quotes Exodus 19, which is the forming of the nation of Israel. You will be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, you, church, are the holy nation, the new nation, the kingdom of priests. And this is really with the whole message of Matthew. Go back to Matthew. Just go back early in the, in the gospel. Look at Matthew chapter 3. This has been the message from the beginning. You must repent or you will be disinherited. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. I love hearing the pages of these Bibles. Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The message has been the same from the beginning of Matthew, the beginning 
of the whole New Testament. Flip over to Matthew chapter 8. He said much the same in chapter 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown in the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Flip over to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, in the regeneration, the new creation, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, disciples, church, will sit also on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken from an unrepentant people and given to a people that are repentant. Look at verse 44, back to Matthew 21. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone will crush and shatter to pieces. Anyone who knows their Bible knows this is straight out of Daniel 2. Do you remember Daniel 2? We read part of it. Matthew loves the book of Daniel, quoting it. Jesus is always quoting it because he's the son of man who will ascend to the right hand of God and be given all authority and have dominion over the nations. Daniel 2 is Nebi's dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel's interpretation, all of the king's wise men are unable to give the meaning, but God's man can and does. And the vision is of this image of a statue with four parts. Let me read it to you from Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its Feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out. So notice, a stone was cut out. By no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces, shattered it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them would be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then what, Dan, what Alex read, in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron and the bronze and the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The four parts of the statue represent four kingdoms. The head of gold is Babylon, the breast and the arms of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire. We're looking at history here. The belly and the thighs of bronze are the Greek Empire, and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay are the Roman Empire. The stone, quite clearly, is the kingdom of God. And it comes, and it strikes the feet because it comes during the Roman Empire. 
The kingdom of God is established during the era of the Roman Empire, and it would outlast it, and it has outlasted it. That's why Jesus, the whole message of Matthew really is, this kingdom is here. That's why his message is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why John's message is the very same. That's why he instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why he says the kingdom of God has come upon them. That's why he says that some standing in the presence, Matthew 16, would not die before they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, Matthew 16, 28. That's why the whole gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. The stone kingdom would shatter all the kingdoms of this world. And this generation of Jews would, in fact, be crushed. Within a generation, we'll learn that Jerusalem would be sacked and the temple destroyed. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They know who Jesus is talking about. They want to get rid of him, but they fear the people. See, they fear people too much. They don't fear God enough. It's the same thing we saw in the previous passage. So what can we take away? Well, briefly, four things. First and foremost, trust in Christ. Receive the king. Don't respond like ancient Israel. Repent and believe the good news. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. God's come in the person of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended. He will come back to judge. What we see in Israel with the destruction of Jerusalem is like a little picture of what he's going to do for all humanity. And so there's still this invitation, in fact, a command, a summons to come to Christ. Listen to the way the book of Acts puts it in chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone in their salvation, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you haven't trusted Christ, trust in Christ. There's no other way to escape the judgment. There's no other way to be saved. Trust Christ, be baptized into the local church, join the new nation. Second, build your life around the cornerstone. Again, that cornerstone is that stone that gives direction to everything else. And so the call here for you is to build your life around the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be that cornerstone where every other aspect of your life is aligned around him. He is Lord and everything else radiates from there. And when you do that... You'll bear fruits. You'll bear spiritual fruit. You'll be changed. What's the distinguishing mark between Old Covenant Israel and this new nation? Look again at verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's been the call from the beginning. We just read it from John the Baptist. Bear fruit or be cut down. We'll know them by their fruits. Focus on Christ and your life will yield fruit. Third, expect opposition. They killed servant after servant. They persecuted prophet after prophet. We shouldn't expect to be treated any differently. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And what should our response be when it happens? Fighting back, defensiveness, anger. No. 
He already taught us that in Matthew 5. Blessed, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's the response, what the response should be. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you. You're in good company. Smile. Expect it. And then fourth and finally, join the mission of God. What have we seen in the Gospel of Matthew? The mission of God is the mission of God is to see the Son exalted and praised among not one nation only, but all nations. That's where this Gospel is going to end. Make disciples of all the nations. This new people that Jesus is forming around himself consists or will consist of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. God is keeping his promise to Abraham to bless the world, to bless the Gentiles, and we get to be a part of his rescue project. How does he do it? Through us sharing this gospel. What a joy. What a privilege. Due to their rejection of Jesus, God will take the kingdom from Israel and give it to the church, a nation of nations that will produce spiritual fruits.